Welcome to Allocation Disorder. We are back. It's another week. MLS is back, back, re-restarting. I don't know what to call it, but the games are up and running again um, as we record here on a Thursday afternoon for a change. Not not a night not a night game for us, Paul. Uh, I am Sam Saiskel. He is Paul Tenorio, uh, your hosts, as always. Uh, and today, we have a little bit of a different kind of show for you. We're going to be talking about MLS and selling players. But before we dive into that, Paul, how, how are things going? Are you uh, are you diving headlong into into the re-resumption of the MLS season? Are you taking it slow? What's your game plan? Yeah, I thought we settled on MLS colon still here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I dropped the ball there. That We did settle on that. I'm 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 all in, man. I'm gonna watch some games tonight. I'm gonna tune in to Chicago Fire, Columbus Crew, or, or something like that. I mean, I get paid to try to watch a few of the games, so that's probably you know contributing to my delinquency yep. in the sense of watching MLS. But <laughs> you know, yeah, I'll watch. Probably probably a good professional thing to do to get in there and watch some games. Uh, Toronto and Vancouver started things off for the non Nashville. Dallas division of the league the other night Toronto put a 3-0 hurting on the Caps who look pretty miserable um, one thing that Vancouver has not been miserable at uh, at least in one instance is selling players Alfonso Davies uh, he's doing pretty well in the UEFA Champions League right now getting ready to play the final on Sunday against Paris Saint-Germain for Bayern Munich um, and of course he is one of the shining examples in MLS of players developing in an academy um, and then being sold for a large fee to a really big European club. Um, he's kind of the perfect example of it, in fact. Um, you're not going to do better than that, I don't think, um, for the for as long as we're doing this. It's going to be hard to top. Um, but let's pull it back a little bit. Two years ago, year and a half ago, December 2018, MLS Commissioner Don Garber stood in front of a assembly of media before MLS Cup in Atlanta, and he stated that he wanted MLS to become more of a selling league, quote unquote. Um, that was a significant change. Uh, MLS had never really stated that out loud, out loud before. In fact, for a long time, they'd worked against it. They wanted to keep their most marketable stars and best players in the league. They did not want to sell them um, abroad, um, regardless of that deal. Um, they changed that. They switched it up a little bit. Um, Paul. Can you explain to me why they did that and why it's important for MLS to start selling players? Well, it's a pretty simple reason why. They needed to introduce a new revenue stream into the league. And one of the biggest revenue streams in global soccer is selling players. And for a long time, Major League Soccer was afraid of the reputation of being a selling league. They thought that it would be a negative in the American market to be considered a selling league. And eventually what they've recognized is that without that revenue coming in and with the significant amount of money that they're spending that's going out, they were never going to be able to reach the status that they wanted to without owners taking on more and more losses. And so it's important because it's going to integrate Major League Soccer more into the international world of soccer, into the marketplace for sure, but into I think the regular conversations that global soccer fans have, and I think it also um, will introduce theoretically more revenue into the league for owners to go and spend on their rosters. Um, but you know, the bigger question, Sam, is why why fight it for so long? Why did MLS think it would be a negative 
in the American market. And do you agree? Do you think it? Do you think it's a bad thing to be considered a selling league? I don't think it's a bad thing to be considered a every league's a selling league, right? Everyone's selling players. Like Barcelona is selling players. You know, Manchester United is selling players. Everyone sells players, and and there are a few clubs at the top of the food chain, including those two that I just mentioned, where you know uh, all the players get funneled to at the end. Um, but no, everyone sells. It's just a normal part of the sport. It's a normal part of the economics of it, of the business of it, and of the sporting side of it in terms of players making leaps. As for why MLS didn't want to be involved in that for a long time, you know, I think it was a little bit of a lack of maturity on the part of the league and the owners and the people in front offices. I think that was part of it. I think part of it was just there weren't that many opportunities to sell players for a long time, right? Like, it's easy to say, oh, MLS didn't want this. Well, not a lot of teams wanted MLS players. Um, and, and I can understand for a fledgling league that's trying to, to make inroads in its own backyard, right? Why you would want to hang on to stars. Well, um, I think, but, Sam, I think when you look over the history of the league, you're right. I mean, it kind of indicates that I don't know if there hasn't been enough interest, but certainly the amount of interest and the money being tra- changing hands, you know, for MLS owners, they probably looked at it as it's not being worth it. I mean, there's probably a couple dozen, maybe a little bit more players in the 25 year history of MLS who have been sold for more than $2 million. And, you know, keeping in mind that the market changed drastically over the last decade even half a decade in the prices in the in the market so you'd have to kind of adjust for that but you know realistically i think considering what mls teams were spending and considering the value of players in a capped league sometimes it was hard to justify selling a player for two or three million dollars when they provide way more value on a roster you know making 300 or 400,000 well not 400,000 but 300,000 dollars and they are a three or four million dollar player, and that still exists in this league. Yeah, no doubt about that. And 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 that's that's a thing that MLS teams still need to get over, right? And and then you kind of have the opposite side of that dynamic too, where guys get big contracts in MLS, maybe before they get paid out on an eight hundred or nine hundred thousand dollar deal, they're interesting assets, interesting targets for European clubs. Then they get that big money and they become less attractive because maybe a team in Portugal or Holland or wherever doesn't want to pay that salary and, and they effectively take themselves out of the transfer market. So there's, there's that aspect too. Um, but you know, I think it's fair for us to kind of look at these last, what is it? 20 months since, since Garber made that sort of declaration, if you will, about wanting to become a selling league and, and to look at what MLS has done since then. Right. So I mentioned Davies earlier, he was sold in that window. Uh, Miguel Almiron moved from Atlanta to Newcastle. Also in that window, those are the two biggest transfers in league history. Um, you know, which one is bigger? Who's to say? <laughs> um, you know, different escalators and uh, kind of will determine that. And no one really knows exactly what those are. Um, but either way, both both are big deals. Uh, Zach Steffen went as well. Um, I think Tyler Adams was sold in that window, Paul. Um, yep. Was Yoshi Otun from Orlando to Cruz Azul? Was was he then or was he earlier than that? I, I can't even remember. But he was some sometime around that within give or take six months. And a few other players as well. Carlos Gruezo from Dallas. Zach Steffen, I mentioned. Uh, Vialba uh, leaving Atlanta. Uh, recently, Huang Mbom going from Vancouver over to, uh, to the Russian Premier League. So there have been a number of sales, right? But... And it's been an increase, but when you compare it to the rest of the world, it's still a minuscule number. Um, so I'll ask you, Paul, like, 
what do you think the league is doing to become more of a selling league? And do you think those efforts are working? Well, they've altered some of the rules, right? You, they've increased the amount of allocation money each team can keep from a transfer. Um, I believe that's now up to a million dollars that they can keep from a transfer um, that can be converted into general allocation money. Uh, that you can keep 100% of the fee if it's a homegrown player. You know, these are things that were done to incentivize teams to sell more and especially to sell homegrown players. Now, my issue is that there's still probably not enough incentive there. There's a few reasons why. One, again, as we talked about, the idea of being a selling league or a selling team comes from taking in that revenue and reinvesting it into the first team, right? The owners in many of these clubs don't have the wealth, the private wealth, to go out and buy players the way Major League Soccer does. Well, if you can only convert a portion of that transfer fee into allocation money for your roster, then you're very limited in how you can spend that money on the first team. So I think there still needs to be some kind of you know, math done or changed there because there are going to be teams that have all three DP spots filled who are going to be limited in what they can do with transfer fees. Um, you know, that still needs to be changed. And I think, um, there, I think there just has to be a change in mentality, probably by increasing the cap. It, it changes the dynamics when you're looking at, for example, Sam, you know, I'll, I'll ask you to expand on this. You look at Aaron long with the Red Bulls, you know, the money was there. It was a decent number for a player with very little first team experience relatively, who was a national team player who had a Premier League offer. But the math is different for an MLS team because of the salary cap. Yeah, 100%. And Paul, I can't remember what the specific offer for Long was from West Ham. What was it, like three, four million, something like that? Yep. Um, so when you're talking about Long, who I think at the time was 26 or 27 when this was all going down last summer, uh, if I remember correctly, you were the one reporting this story. So please jump in if I'm wrong on any of these details. But, um, yeah, I mean, like you can take that three, four million and you can put it towards a designated player, right? But if you don't put it towards a designated player, then you only get a million in, in general allocation up to a million, uh, in general allocation money that you have to take out of the transfer fee. Um, to go and use on your roster. And for a player of Aaron Long's caliber, and this was this before or after he signed his new deal? It was just after. So, you know, at the time, he had been making, what, like $70,000 a year, and he was a best 11 center back in MLS. Um, and then he got bumped up to, I think, around $800,000 a year. But even still, to replace a player like Aaron Long, um, the Red Bulls, who have a very specific style of play, right, um, they would have to go out and probably spend a couple million dollars to get that same level of player. And that's not something that they can really do unless they want to spend a DP spot on a center back, which isn't really something that's done in MLS. So yeah, you can sell them. Um, but the way the roster rules are designed, both in terms of selling players and how much allocation money you can get out of that. Um, and also in terms of just the general roster rules and DPs and TAM and all that stuff. Uh, it makes it hard to replace those guys. So I, I, I can sympathize with why teams don't want to spend or don't want to sell players necessarily, especially when they're saying, hey, we're competing for an MLS Cup here. And I think that's one of the major dynamics. And, and Paul, like, you know, you can speak to this, um, but I think that's something we're seeing with LAFC over the last couple of years. 
Yeah, I mean, I think LAFC is in a very similar position than to what Atlanta was a couple years ago with Miguel Amiron. Um, you reported on the significant interest and the significant uh, money that was there for them with Almiron in the summer of 2018. There were, for there Joseph were, Martinez, too. Yeah. So, you know, they had to make a choice. You know, is it worth it to sell these players or do we want to make a realistic and legitimate run at MLS Cup? And Arthur Blank decided, no, I don't care if I potentially leave money on the table. I want to win. And they took that gamble and they won and they still sold Almiron for a lot of money. So it worked out well for Atlanta. LAFC is in the same position now. You know, they have two players in Rossi and Atuesta who are very important to the team, very important to their title hopes, both of whom have strong international interest. And so they have to decide, you know, are they willing to risk selling those players and hurting their title hopes or risk keeping those players and potentially hurting the amount of money or the, the transfer interest at all? And that's the decision that LAFC faces. So that factors in as well. But Sam, I think there's an important thing to talk about here, which is, you know, for players, from a player perspective, no one wants to go to a league where they feel it is the end of their career, right? Like MLS has always been tapped as the retirement league. Um, You don't want to be a league where you can't grow from there. Um, MLS is not the Premier League yet, right? It's not the best league in the world. And so if you're going to build part of your identity around buying talented young players from South America or Mexico or Central America or Europe or even to develop them here in the United States, you have to have that next step. You have to show those players that they are capable of moving on. And that's probably a big part of what MLS has to start to demonstrate, right? I mean, I would I would guess that you you think that that's probably um, an important part of you know, what MLS wants to be without maybe realizing it. Yeah, well, it's a big part of the recruitment strategy, right? For a lot of these teams, it's hey, come here, you'll make a good amount of money, um, and when the time comes, we'll sell you on, right? And there's tension there when it gets to the point where the team hasn't sold, and there was tension there with Almiron. Right. He got to the point where he wanted to go. He was like, I need to go in order to further my career and to achieve the things that I want to achieve. And it worked out perfectly for Atlanta in terms of the timing. But there was real tension there. And and I, I want to say, like, you know, they weren't accepting offers in that January. They were getting bids and it, it sort of came down to the wire um, for him to go to Newcastle when he went. Um, and I think LAFC will probably run into that pretty soon with Rossi in particular. Um, probably at Tuesta at some point, maybe Brian Rodriguez at some point. Um, although he's not, he's younger and he hasn't been there as long and he hasn't achieved anything nearly as much as those other two players in MLS. So it's a little bit of a different story. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how these bigger MLS clubs handle that. Right. Because I think there's another side of the equation here and I can't believe it's taken us this long (laughs) to mention these guys, but, um, the Philadelphia union, right. Brendan Aronson and Mark McKenzie have both been, you know, getting a lot of interest. Jim Curtin's out here saying that the offers are real and they're significant and they're weighing them. And, you know, it could be pretty soon that they get sold. Um, that's how the union are designed, right? They know they might not be winning MLS Cup. They're okay with that. But this is their model. They're saying, okay, we're going to be competitive. We're going to be entertaining. And we're going to develop young homegrown players. And then we are going to sell them on, right? That's what they've claimed. They haven't done it yet. But they have some interesting test cases here coming up in Aaronson and McKenzie. And Paul, like, do, do you think they'll pull the trigger? 
I do. I'm actually working on a story about it right now. I spoke with Jim Curtin and I spoke with Ernst Tanner. And the, the question I asked them is, how can you tell? How can you tell when a player is ready to move on, when they've hit that ceiling of development that you've taken them as far probably as they can go because this league has a ceiling for some players? You know, Tyler Adams reached the top of his potential with the Red Bulls. He needed to go to the Bundesliga to reach the next level of his game, right? And I don't know that Brendan Aronson is necessarily there yet. I think there are player places that they've challenged him to get better in the final third, certainly. And Jim Curtin talked about that. But I think he also recognizes that Aronson is starting to see passes he didn't see last year. He's starting to understand the game in a way that he didn't last year. And in order to accelerate that development or to truly take advantage of it, he needs to challenge himself at a higher level. And like you said, the union are okay with that. That is the design of the system they've set up with the academy and why they went and got somebody like Ernst Tanner, who comes from a background at Hoffenheim and at Red Bull Salzburg, where you sell players in order to fund the project. And there are actually some really interesting parallels between Red Bull Salzburg and the growth that they underwent as a club after Red Bull purchased them and Major League Soccer. And I'm kind of kind of delve into that in the article, so I don't want to give too much away. But Salzburg started off when they were bought, they had kind of a fan mutiny because it was a corporate club now and and the original Salzburg fans weren't happy and in order to bring fans back into the stands they actually initially started by signing big name superstar players toward the end of their career and I think that you know they recognized eventually that that was a model that would bring fans in but only temporarily right it wouldn't necessarily um keep fans in the stands. And so they started to pivot when they brought Ralph Ragnick in and they started to look to sign younger players who they could develop. And Ernst Tanner was a big part of that at the academy level. And he talked about the success of the under-19 team in the in the European League. And that started to interest fans. And then the next hurdle was understanding that it's okay to sell these players. Fans were upset the first time they started to sell the stars. And then eventually new stars were purchased with that money. And more of them. And you start to see, oh, this is a cycle, right? This is the way Ajax has always done business. This is, You can do this on a realistic timeline. And I think MLS is in that position now where they're transitioning between buying older stars and buying and developing younger stars. And they still need to get over that hump of it's okay to sell. So, yes, I do think the union will sell. And I think it's going to be a really important part of this league's development because – Sam, we've seen teams like Dallas before, mm-hmm. and even the Red Bulls, who play a lot of homegrown players. We haven't seen a lot of teams co- consistently selling players on the market. And maybe Philadelphia can be the first one. Yeah, and I would say Red Bulls have had that attitude, right? They're not afraid to do that. Um, they just maybe haven't had the critical mass of players who are sort of attractive to foreign clubs. Hey everybody, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show jumping in. I wanted to give Red Bulls fans a moment to catch their collective breath from fuming at Sam. Uh, And before we hear about which team Sam is most interested in, I wanted to let you know that this episode of Allocation Disorder is brought to you by FuboTV. Paul was mentioning some games earlier. If you're in the mood to follow suit, if you want to watch some games, then take a look over at Fubo. They've got all the soccer from MLS to the Champions League to the Canadian Premier League. Uh, As I record this, FC Edmonton are taking on Cavalry FC in a match already being described as on Fubo 
right now. If, say, three people all wanted to watch one of those at the same time, that's a possibility with the Fubo Family Plan that allows three people to be using the same service at the same time and upgrades your DVR storage to 500 hours, which, by my calculations, is many hours. You can stay updated on your favorite leagues as well as local broadcast news by going to fubo.tv slash TSS today and start your free seven-day trial right now. You will not regret it. That's fubo.tv slash TSS. Start your free trial today. Thank you very much to Fubo for sponsoring this episode. Now back to Sam and the team he thinks is interesting. Dallas is interesting, right? They've sold Carlos Gruezo, a young Ecuadorian player who they actually got from the Bundesliga in the first place. He went back to the Bundesliga last year. Um, they've sold Chris Richards, who was a homegrown kid who had never even played a game for the first team, to Bayern Munich. Uh, but they also have some other guys, right? Paxton Pomacall being one. Reggie Cannon being another. And they've signed those guys to new contracts. Now, Cannon's is interesting, right? Because his is designed in a way that incentivizes Dallas to sell him. Because basically his number will go way up next year um, to a, to an amount that MLS teams aren't really thrilled about playing out paying out for outside backs. And so the idea is that Dallas would sell him before then and Cannon could go on, but in case he doesn't get sold, he has a level of security. Pomacall is on a big deal now, right? And I think that's going to make it harder, unless he's willing to maybe take a pay cut to go to Europe, for him to move. Um, because a club, in, a club in Holland, for instance, that, that might want to go after a Paxton Pomacall, which I think is a reasonable landing spot for him, or Belgium, right? They're not going to be paying, what is it, six, $700,000 a year to bring him in. Like, he's not going to make that much money, uh, particularly after taxes in a European country like that versus taxes in Dallas and in Texas, where there is no state income tax, right? So that's what I was sort of talking about earlier. Like, these deals, they're interesting. And, and, and Dallas's mindset, it confuses me a little bit. Um, I don't know, like, you know, the hunts they talk about wanting to develop and wanting to put players from their academy into FC Dallas and then on to the U.S. men's national team. Um, and that's great, right? That's laudable. And I, they're starting to do that, really. Um, so good for them. Uh, they also wanted, They also have talked about wanting to sell these players. And they haven't always put uh, their money where their mouth is on that one or received their money where their mouth is. I, I don't know. I'm mixing metaphors here, but <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what Dallas does. There are a lot of different dynamics to play for all of these teams. Uh, yeah, go ahead. And Sam, I think like to note this, I mean, the two most prominent players that FC Dallas has ever sold American players, homegrown players from their, you know, vaunted Academy, never played a game for the first team. If you show your, potential, they didn't sell, they didn't sell McKinney. So I'm sorry that have gone went, on, he, right? Sorry, the, went on the two free. players who have gone on for the first team. who have gone on to Europe and succeeded from the FC Dallas Academy, maybe even arguably the three with Capis, but I, I would say certainly the two with McKenney and, and Chris Richards. Right. And maybe it's a little early to say Chris Richards has succeeded, but he's on a good path. Yeah. I mean he's made his debut for Bayern Munich, so it's pretty pretty Yeah, notable, yeah, no, he's doing he's doing well. He's played one game, but he's, he, doing he's well. had a better chance at it. And and that sale, I think, doesn't happen without the partnership between Bayern Munich and FC Dallas, where where he signed with Dallas before being sold to Bayern. I think if that partnership doesn't exist, Chris Richards probably goes for free to Bayern Munich, right? And I think 
we have to recognize that this isn't the first time we've had a conversation about FC Dallas maybe holding on too long to a player or not really recognizes recognizing the value of selling a player or understanding where a realistic market value is for a player. You know, Reggie Cannon is similar to Kellen Acosta in that sense. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, so will they make the same mistake they made with Kellen Acosta with Reggie Cannon? I am not willing to say right now today that they are going to be more willing to sell Reggie Cannon than they were Kellen Acosta. I could absolutely see FC Dallas holding on to Reggie Cannon because they think that there's more value there, even with a contract that was designed for him to be sold, even with the promises that Dan Hunt made directly to Reggie Cannon before he signed this contract. And that right there is indicative of the lack of understanding of the global market that still exists in the powers that be in MLS. You can hire, as they did, a technical director like Andre Zanota, who comes from a selling background and still overrule that background, overrule right. Zanotto that was expertise. involved in the sale of Neymar to Barcelona, like to give a little bit of his background, right? right? Like he's he was doing it at the very highest levels from the Americas to Europe. He knows how to play this game. Um, but if ownership says no, or if ownership doesn't pull the trigger, give you the okay then there's only so much that a front office person can do. Um, so that, that part is, that part is very interesting. Paul. And, no and Sam, I, I had an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your take on this. I had an interesting conversation with somebody who has experience selling players out of major league soccer, who was maybe a little bit ahead of the trend in that sense of trying to look to capitalize in, in the market and believes that the next step for some of these teams is to, hire people specifically to kind of take advantage of the um, of the selling market and to better educate the teams of what a selling market should look like, what the valuation of these MLS players should be, because the league is so inexperienced at selling players. And and let's let's put it bluntly, you know, I think in the front office of Major League Soccer, which still has a big role in selling players, doesn't have a ton of expertise on transfer transfer markets in that office either. And that's okay, right? I'm not trying to be critical in the sense of like, there's something wrong with those people. This is a new part of the league's identity and the transfer market has changed drastically. And by the way, changed again during COVID. But this idea that there needs to be some investment in experts in selling that are full-time focused on what prices should be for MLS players and developing relationships in Europe that kind of create more of a network directly from MLS to Europe, where you know where a player should go, where a player should fit, that those teams have an understanding of MLS players, that you know around what the price should be. So there isn't so much of this happening higher salesman essentially yeah what do you <laughs> to, think about to, that do you think go that out could there work? and go door to door i don't hate that idea i think it's interesting i i would say that there are all these teams have a finite number of resources right in terms of how much money they can pay to hire people to scout um to sign players all of that stuff and i'm not sure that that's where i would put my money right if i was allocating it and if i was in charge of a budget um that said if i'm philly for instance maybe i try and go there 
Um, the other side of the equation is I would say MLS teams are starting to do that a little bit, not so formally, right? But look at look at who's being hired. It's GMs and technical directors, man. It's a bunch of guys who are coming over from Europe and South America, right? Lutz Fahnenstiel in St. Louis, right? And they don't begin play for three years, but he's coming over from Germany, right? Charlotte hired a Serbian who served as an agent in Europe, right? Ernst Tanner is a great example of this. Olivier Renaud in Montreal, um, you know, Axel Schuster in Vancouver. All of these guys have experience in the market, right? George and that's Heights. a big part of their selling part, selling point when they're being hired um, is like, this guy's going to come over and he's going to understand how to sell. Um, so I would say the teams are already starting to do that. Do they need to hire a dedicated person to like help out? Like, yeah, that'd be cool. Like, I'm sure it wouldn't hurt, but like, I get why they're not allocating the resources to do something like that. But there is another part of this to me, Paul, and that is the perception, right? And you mentioned it, like when you're talking about like a salesman to go out there and essentially pitch MLS players. We've talked about this before on the show, like proof of concept. There hasn't been one. And that's starting to change, I think, right? Look at what Alfonso Davies did to to Barcelona the other day. Like things like that matter. (laughs) You know, that guy came from MLS and within like a year or two is pretty much the best left back in the entire world. Adams. You know, was that, should that have been an own goal uh, in the in the quarterfinal? Probably, but he still came on and scored it, right? That sort of thing matters. Even Weston McKinney, who never played in MLS, but is an American player. Christian Pulisic, same. Like, Pulisic doing great in the Premier League this year. McKinney, you know, you see it in the numbers that have been tossed around for him from in, these, in the transfer market. You know, you're talking about 25 million bucks from Southampton potentially for, for him to be sold. So I think the perception is changing and I think that's really important for MLS. Yeah. Jonathan David is another one who never played in MLS, never even played for an MLS Academy. But when what you a take story, by the when, way, Jonathan David, <laughs> and when you take Alfonso Davies and then you take Jonathan David, all of a sudden these European teams are looking not just at MLS and the United States market, but the Canadian market, right? And Toronto FC's Academy and Montreal's Academy, Balu Tabla. Who, who had a chance with Barcelona B, didn't work out. He's back in MLS. But, you know, Vancouver, I mean, they're looking now because of those success stories. And I think the danger is that MLS grabs on to Alfonso Davies and says, you know, he's done amazing. And people said that he was sold for too much money. But now look, right? And everyone in MLS, when they talk to teams about selling, wants to use that number as a gauge for what their players should cost on the market. Let's be clear here. Alfonso Davies is an outlier. Okay. He's not just an outlier in his performance in Europe so far. He was an outlier in what he was doing in MLS at the age he was doing it. When I went Mm -hmm. to Bayern Munich and spoke to some of the Americans who are over there, uh, you know, even they said, like, hey, let's, you know, let's not compare us playing in the youth system at at Bayern Munich to a player, Alfonso Davies, who was tearing up MLS at 16 years old and 17 years old. It was clear he was on a different path. And and that's the, the, the next tier of proof of concept, Sam, is where MLS needs to start to appreciate it more, right? They need to start to understand that it's okay to sell Aaron Long for $3 million. You know, it's okay to sell Reggie Cannon for $3 million because, you know, yes, if Reggie Cannon was you know, even Costa Rican, would the price be higher? Probably. But you need to start to create a consistent level of player being sold at a 
at a consistent market rate who exceeds those expectations in order to take the next jump up in price. And that is where MLS struggles. It's like they want that next tier of money so badly that they're willing not to sell, and then they never create the market for themselves. Right. You can't skip steps, right? You, you have to take them one, one at a time, maybe two at a time, if you get lucky and you have a couple Alfonso Davies or Tyler Adams, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that. I mean, at the same time, though, you know, you mentioned Aaron Long, right? And I get why the Red Bulls kept him, because you can't replace him for the money that you were getting, and you're, trying to, you're out here trying to win a title. Right, and I think for that MLS needs to change not not really the transfer rules, but really the entire roster rules and, and the cap and how teams are allowed to spend the limited money that they're allowed to spend. Um, and I don't know if that's going to be happening anytime soon. You can still sell players um, before that happens or without that happening, um, but until that changes, right the ceiling is going to be lower than it could be in this system. So I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think, you know, to me, this goes back to a different discussion as well. And that's sort of a diversification um, of model among teams. And I think that that would be good. I think it it would be good to have kind of a separation of not just like contenders and non-contenders, right? But of teams that are trying to build in it, way X and in way Y and in way Z and having that become more and more defined. Um, What do you think about that idea? Kind of a diversification of models. Yeah. I mean, I think it's occurring in a way, but you're right. The rules kind of get in the way of being able to fully commit to a certain model. And I, I I mean, I don't know in my conversation with Jim Curtin, he, he sort of disagreed. He still thinks it's possible to be a selling team like Philadelphia to, to develop and then sell players and still be successful in MLS, even with the limitations on, where you can spend that money. But I, I think, think it's possible too. It's just harder. It's, it's definitely harder. And th- that's the interesting part is that those owners right now, are the lower spending owners, and they are hesitant to change the rules because they're concerned about how a team like Atlanta or LAFC or Toronto could take advantage of having more money to spend. And what they don't recognize is the flip side of it. If, if you ease up some of these restrictions, it allows you to take a better advantage of the model that we've seen in Dallas and Philadelphia, even with the Red Bulls. And there are going to be differences. You know, I was talking to one GM that said, you know, there there are going to be teams who take more money and say they're going to go spend it, right? The LAFCs and Atlantas and Torontos and Galaxy. And there are going to be teams who have more money at their disposal and still commit to the academy level and say, we're going to spend more at the academy and we're going to try to sell those players and then reinvest. And that's the key, right? Like, let's look at Vancouver. They are probably one of, if not the worst team in the league, the worst roster in the league. I think, I think the worst, I think, I think you can say full stop. Yeah. And, and they have the biggest transfer fee in, I mean, I, there's some debate, like you said, with Almiron, but one of the two biggest transfer fees in MLS history only a couple years ago. And how did they reinvest that money? Well, they went and bought Cavallini and they I think Adnan was was in there as well. So like two yeah, DPs. And Huang, but that's Huang all they could, that's all they could really do, right? You can only really put that money into two or three players. And so here you have this massive transfer fee, this massive influx of cash. And you can spread it amongst three or four players in your roster that can make a difference. How is that a good model for Vancouver? 
how does that take advantage of the sale of Alfonso Davies? Imagine if they could take that 13.5 million upfront in cash and invest all of it into their first team and go and buy one or two younger players, you know, that are at that eight and a half million dollar level, that Almiron level. I mean, now they, they could have done that though. I mean, but but there are limitations, you know, and I think yeah. or they or they could go buy four guys, right? At, right. at or they could buy million. eight, right? right? Like, and instead, instead, you can do it on three max, right? So, and and like maybe that's the model you choose, and you can be successful that way. But why not give teams more options to choose what they want to be, right? And to choose how to best spend their money. These teams are hiring these guys in a lot of cases from foreign countries. To big, expensive, fancy contracts to come run their clubs, and they don't allow them kind of the full range of motion, if you want to put it like that, needed to actually run their club how they want to. And that to me, it's it's just, I mean, this is the, if there is like a theme, if you were going to write something on the eventual tombstone of allocation disorder, long may it live, but if, you know, if you were going to write it, it would just be like, let these people do what they want. Like, make the rules less restrictive. Allow teams to go out and and do what they want to do. And and you know this conversation, like all the other ones that we have, <laughs> kind of falls back into that trap. Yeah, and you can be both too. By the way, I mean, look at LAFC, Atlanta, NYCFC, and Toronto for that matter. Four teams that are all willing to spend money, have a lot of money, and also have invested heavily in their academies. You don't have to do one or the other. And there are a lot of teams who do both globally. And, you know, I just think that it is that next step for MLS to grow is to loosen these rules and inject and and by doing that, embrace even further a revenue stream that the owners need and want. Right. Take right. advantage of this revenue stream and 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 elevate the reputation of American soccer and Canadian soccer by doing so. These are all things that MLS wants to do. And they, they wonder why do we keep investing in academies if we're not making any money off of it? It's $2 million a year flushed down the toilet. Well, partly because you're not doing it right. You're not doing the last and most important step, which is developing players, right? They're, they're, they're getting them to a certain age, putting them on the field, not doing it well enough, and then selling them when they do well. And those last two steps are the two most important steps. And I think it's important, Sam, when I, when I, again, I'm the kid who studied abroad. I always say this on the show, but like when I was at Bayern Munich talking to them about, (laughs) did did you go to Europe, Paul? Yeah. Did you go report (laughs) stories in Europe? Talking to them about MLS. What was that like? Did, did you like, did you like go and like eat dinners late at night and like sample like local cuisine? Did it change your life? I did do that. I, I did sample. I, you know what? I had a lot of frites in in Belgium and Germany, not so many frites, maybe a few more beers. You have some, a lot of beer in Belgium too. A lot of beer in Belgium. Um, yeah. But anyway, when, when (laughs) you're talking to people in Europe about MLS's model, what they often say is when you bring American kids to Europe, at 15, 16, 17 years old, they're very much at the same level as the European prospects in technical ability, in physicality and athleticism, where they're lacking is pace of play and kind of the tactical side of the game in the sense of how quickly they're thinking the game. And the belief specifically at Bayern Munich is if we can sign players at 16 or 17, we believe we can get them up to you speed fast enough. 
you know, that, that we can still get them to that pace of play by the time that they're ready to play at the Bundesliga level or at the Bayern Munich level, depending on, on how they advance. But once you start to get to 20, 21, 22, there's, there's, it's harder for these American players. They've, they've spent too much time playing at a slow pace or, or not playing at all. And so the investment's not worth it. So that gap is where MLS is failing. And it's not a new thing. I did an interview with Bruce Arena, must be 10 years ago now, where he called it the black hole of American soccer. And it's still that. And they've tried to fill it, right, with the USL. And it's worked occasionally, right? It helped Tyler Adams. It helped Alfonso Davies get minutes in those key years. But it's not all the way there yet. And a part of it, too, is, you know, do you want to put those young players on the field in MLS? Um, And so the... You know, for me, that is still a big part of this equation is is playing those players, throwing them on the field, seeing what you've got occasionally. Right. We saw that a lot more in MLS's back than we have in the past. I think we're gonna see it again with MLS still here, where we're gonna see more the players. Return. Even Ben Olsen said he's gonna play some homegrown players, you know, what? because yeah. So we're going to start Olsen. to see it more. Wow. You know, Chicago signed 11 homegrown players. Are we going to see any of the young ones? Or are we just going to see the kids who have been in college, right? Like eventually you have to throw them on the field and see what you've got and see if they can sink or swim. And it doesn't mean that if you don't make it, if you don't play well at 16 or 17 in your first debut that you're done, right? The idea is that you get them consistent minutes or more minutes at the USL level. But, you know, eventually you got to see what you got. And then if you got it, Sell them. Yeah. And we'll see if MLS ever gets there. I mean, none of this stuff is re- like, they don't have to reinvent the wheel here. This is how the rest of the world works. And Paul, you mentioned the revenue stuff a few times. Uh, that's going to be key for MLS, you know, particularly because who knows what that next broadcast deal is going to look like. But I think it's better than even odds that it's not going to bring with it a really, really hugely substantial increase in dollars. So you're going to have to open up a new revenue stream. And this is kind of one that you haven't tapped into at all as a league and one that the rest of the world operates in. So maybe they can get there. Maybe they can't. What do you think kind of a reasonable target or expectation is for MLS in terms of this over the next, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Three years, five years? I was just about to ask you the same thing. And the way I think about it in my mind is not number of players sold. It's can they get the balance of money coming in and money going out to be closer? Maybe it's not 50-50. I get that. And in fact, you probably want it to be higher in how you're spending versus what you're bringing in, right? Because their goal is to be above Holland and Belgium, where that is right. the other way around, right? Where you bring in more than you um, put out there in the market, MLS's goal is to be competing with the Bundesliga and the Premier League and La Liga and those leagues. So they probably do need to spend somewhat significantly more than they make. Yeah. But it yeah. has to be, I don't know, Sam, what would you say? Like maybe 60, 40, 65, 35, somewhere closer to that. And I think it's Man, probably... Man, that, that would be such a huge jump from where they are now. What like, would you say they're at now? Such a huge jump. I mean, I, that's hard to say, but like in the 90s, like I would say it's greater than 90, 10, maybe it's like 95, five. What do you think? Is that, 
Is that re- yeah, I think reasonable? that's fair, and I think they've got to get it. They've got to get that selling percentage up, or the the you know the numbers closer to twenty to thirty percent. And and you're right, it's a huge jump because it's a it's a total change in identity. It's a cho- total change in mentality about the market, and part of it is going to hopefully come from a willingness to buy more young players, which you know I, I still think is a real issue, Sam. Like the youth transfer money. You aren't a league Call that's shown. Yeah, yeah, the Young Money Fund, baby. Uh, we we got to be able to insert audio, you know, little, little Wayne right there. But yeah, I mean, you know, can it's hard. Look at let's look at realistically the young young players that MLS has signed. It doesn't work out all the time, man. And in fact, maybe more no, often Almir, than not, it doesn't. Almiron tricked everybody. But he wasn't that young. Like you're talking about Barco. You're talking about yeah. Brian Rochez, Carlos Rivas. You're talking oh, about, I mean, I know there are players, I mean, outside of, you look at LA. I mean, you know, I think that there are, there aren't that many examples of guys under the age of 20 or 21 that the league is bringing in and flipping for big money. It's hard to do it at that age. A lot of unknowns, a lot of variables with a kid that, that at that age, right? So, and, and things could go any which way. And we've seen that time and time again. But the idea is well if we buy more of these we can sell more of them right it's a shortcut from developing (laughs) them in the academy right that's what they're trying to do which is fine if you're going to actually sell the players and that's kind of where we're at right where we're talking about you know lafc as an example or um you know even atlanta you know are you going to actually be able to have proof of concept and and from development standpoint philadelphia and dallas and we're not there yet Definitely not. Um, I do think it's trending that direction, though, slowly but surely, you know, and that's the story of MLS, slowly but surely. Um, and that's that's some, some of the things that we get so frustrated about is that pace, and we wish it could go faster, but I think it's pretty clear. And I think MLS knows this, right? Garber said it in December 2018 that they need to become more of a selling league, and they need to get those percentages, right, from 90-10 or 95-5 or whatever it is now. Like, over the next few years, like closer to 80, 20 and then 70, 30 and so on and so forth. Um, that's going to be a, a real Herculean effort. I'm not sure that it's realistic in the short term, but you know, maybe by the 2026 world cup, that's going to be co-hosted by the U S Canada and Mexico. Maybe you can get into, into a more healthy place at that point and more in line with the rest of the world. And I think you and I both believe Paul, that that would create a healthier, more sustainable, certainly. And, uh, in terms of quality of play, better, more compelling league. Yeah. And I think, you know, I kind of want to, my last take on this is probably, you know, Sam, who would be the names that you, would say to to people listening these are the guys to watch right these are the guys who signal the next adams what the next mls Davies. is going to do right are they sold or are they not do they stay or do they go what the prices look like that are kind of the canary in the in, in the coal mine for you that you hmm. watch and say this is the way it's going well i don't think it's going to be i don't think there is going to be a guy that's a turning point like that so i think it's kind of a false premise paul <laughs> well i <laughs> think it's I'll, not about one I'll guy play, i'm talking I'll about play like along. Let's watch the scenarios and see how they play out and see if attitudes sure. are changing. So I think the Philly kids get sold, right? Aronson and McKenzie. And I, I don't know if it happens this summer, but I don't think it happens any later than next summer, right? Um, so I think they'll both go. Uh, for me, it's, I mean, you know, I think Rossi probably goes. I'm not sure that Etuesta does. 
Um, I think that'll be really interesting. I'd be curious to know what, you know, the market is for him and what LAFC value him at and how close those two things match up. Uh, I do think you're getting to an inflection point with those guys um, in terms of, okay, like you need to win this year because they're going to want out at a certain point. Um, But the ones that I look at are Dallas. Those to me are the best test cases, right? Those are the academy kids. For the most part, Dallas has shown that they're willing to sell non-academy players, Fabian Castillo, although I guess they weren't so willing in that case. Um, and, and Carlos Gruezo, you know, being two, Moro Diaz as well. Um, they're willing to sell those guys, but I think that there's a little emotional attachment to the academy kids from that organization that sort of clouds the judgment. Um, and so I'm going to be really interested to see what Dallas does because they've said what they want to do. They've said that they want to sell. And when push comes to shove, are they actually going to do it with players who have been in the first team and have come through the academy and have been in FCD for life? Um, that, to me, is going to be really interesting. Yeah. I, w- I would say there's kind of different tiers for me. And I, I look at you know, I look at Philadelphia and-, and Dallas kind of in a similar group, right? Homegrown players who have value right now, do they get sold when they have that value? And does that money get reinvested? So, you know, I, I put one group of... Reggie Cannon, Paxton Pomicall, Jesus Ferreira, Brendan Aronson, Mark McKenzie. Um, I look at Kansas City, Rubio, you know, not Rubio. Um, <laughs> Did you say Rufio? No, you mean Busio. Busio instead of Rubio, uh, who's not By no the way, Eric Palmer Brown, Kansas City. Kansas City, right? Like that's one that they completely Yeah, pushed, that's a, that's a good example. You know, do they change? You know, they, they put together a plan uh, for Busio. You know, do does it end in a sale? Um you know, even Colorado, guys like Jonathan Lewis, who are complementary players who have interest from Europe and, you know, what kind of valuation gets put on a player like that. So there's that group that I keep an eye on. Then there's the high end, like you said, LAFC, you know, watching what happens with Rossi, with Atuesta, with a team that spends money to to theoretically flip them. I look at a guy like Andres Reyes in, in Miami, player rated very highly, has done well, is young. You know, had already had a shot at Juve. You know, is that a guy who um, who gets sold? You know, I, I, the, they they have that same not, model. Not as if Atlanta. Dom Dwyer has anything to say about it. That's for sure. Right. So I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I think um, you know, I, I I think those are the types of players. Uh, you know, or maybe it was McCoon and Reyes. Those players in Miami, um, Pellegrini, young DPS that are purchased. You know, do those guys get sold on? You know, that's kind of the mid-tier, lower, not Rossi level, but that next tier down. Um, and those are the players I'm keeping an eye on. Where do they go in the next two or three years? And how do they develop in this league? And and I think we'll have a pretty good idea, you know, even by the 2022 World Cup, how well MLS is executing this plan. Yeah, I think by the end of 21, really, we'll have a pretty good picture of it. Um, you know, you get through the next summer transfer window. I think it'll start to become pretty clear. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. This is a long-term storyline that is going to have serious ramifications for MLS as a whole. You know that the two of us in this show are going to continue to follow it um, and probably talk about it until we're blue in the face and your ears are falling off. Um, hopefully that's not right now, but just in case it is, I think we're going to break. Um, this is Sam speaking for Fault Norio. This has been Allocation Disorder. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend.